Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Vlahos, and I am here, as always, with my compatriot, Daniel Arison, as we ring the bell at the big house of lies and corruption and call out the Beltway compradors inside. This week, we will be talking to writer John Hoffman about the dysfunctional U.S.-Middle East relationship. But first, the midterms are less than a month away, and they are shaping up to be an important uh, electoral issue uh, for foreign policy given the situation in Ukraine. Of course, the economy is uppermost on most American minds, but Republicans have been the only ones so far to sound the alarms on the amount of money the Biden administration has appropriated for Ukraine, more than $50 billion since the war began in late February, over $16 billion in weapons and other military assistance of that total, of the $50 billion total. While support for Ukraine has mostly been a bipartisan affair, the restiveness has been mostly on the right and for a number of reasons. One, the funding, with little oversight or debate in Congress. Two, it's Biden's policy, so there is skepticism, if not outright political criticism. Three, there may be a combination of the first two, but also a genuine concern that the war is not only not in the U.S. interest, but Biden's direct assistance could drag the war on forever or worse, blow up into World War III, nuclear weapons and all. The small but growing party split is apparent enough for Ukraine officials to speak out about. In a Monday Washington Post article on the concern, on the concern of what might happen if the House flips in favor of the G- GOP, a senior Ukrainian official who spoke on the condition of an anonymity to speak candidly, told the Post that Ukraine's near total dependency on foreign military and economic aid meant that its military must quickly recapture as much Russian-controlled territory as possible before any potential softening of Western support. Quote, the U.S. midterms are one of the factors that have us concerned about the winter, the official said. Russia will gain an advantage with the new Congress and with Europeans as they blackmail them on energy policy. That's why the current offensive is so important, end quote. Of course, advocates for a policy in which the U.S. continues to give the tools to fight no matter the cost are already besmirching critics on the right as MAGA fascists in service of Moscow and Putin, a sort of brethren of white Christian nationalists sticking up for one another. A tweet by Never Trumper Lincoln Group said it right out loud on Monday. Quote, democracy is under attack across the globe. That's why Ukraine's fight is our fight. MAGA Republicans and Vladimir Putin are cut from the same authoritarian cloth. A win for either would mean a severe loss for democracy. So it sounds like Biden's speeches last month where he seemed to put Trumpers and MAGA and Putin and Euro autocrats all in the same box, leaving folks who were just fed up with a Washington foreign policy that seems to leave its citizens out of the equation while it blunders into latest pro- the latest proxy war, feeling tarred and threatened. So what do you think, Dan? Uh, one, do you think Ukraine is playing any role in how Americans will be voting next month? And two, if the Republicans take the House, will they push back more on what has become a proxy war at the very least or, or hold the line on rubber stamping more weapons and assistance. Right. Well, so I, I think I mean, on, in terms of the, its impact on the election, I'm guessing that at least as a, as a top issue, Ukraine would probably rank it as a, a top issue only for a very small number of voters. We, we know that voters very rarely vote 
primarily on foreign policy. I think where it, it may come in or where it may compound the Democrats' problems uh, in the election is if they perceive the aid that's going to Ukraine as coming at the expense of resources going to American domestic needs. And, and I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the pressure on members of Congress coming from. Uh, you're, you're seeing a lot of people at the grassroots level who are seeing these uh, large sums of, of weapon supplies, uh, lots of lots of assistance going to Ukraine, uh, and, and seemingly w- without any resistance from anyone. Uh, but it, it seems like it's pulling teeth to get any domestic needs funded, and, and people see that discrepancy, and I think they're they're people are becoming more and more frustrated by it, where it seems like there, there's there's much more of a consensus in favor of helping other countries than there is in helping people here at home. That being said, I think if the Republicans do take control of the House, you're not actually going to see a huge shift on policy. Uh, The leadership is basically on board with the same policy as the Biden administration. Um, I think most of the the relevant committee chairs that would be taking over in the event of a change in power are also on board with that policy. So you, you do see a, a significant faction among Republicans that are questioning this or, or challenging it or at least raising some doubts about how sustainable it is to keep being the primary patron of the Ukrainian war effort when European allies are doing far less. Um, it, they're, 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 I don't think there, there are quite enough numbers on the Republican side to actually force a change in direction. You might see a slowing of the funneling of aid. You might see more hearings being held, trying to get to the bottom of where these weapons are going, how they're being used, and that sort of thing. And and I think in that case, uh, you would end up with more accountability and more transparency than we've had, and that would be an improvement. Um, I, I think, but I think the the fear that the, the midterms are going to actually lead to a big shift or a big a big change uh, is, is really wishful thinking on the part of uh, people that want to see the policy change. Uh, and it's it's an exaggerated fear on the part of the Ukrainians who I think are, are looking out on the horizon for problems. Uh, but I, I think they, they may be imagining a problem here that doesn't really exist. Yeah, I, uh, I was particularly, uh, I would say, put off by that Lincoln group tweet um, only because I've been following this whole thread started by Biden in which he conflates his domestic policy and electoral strategy against MAGA as being fascists with um, those who are criticizing his policies overseas as proto-fascism. And, um, you know, there was some skepticism when I raised this not with you, but I mean, when I raised this among others uh, several weeks ago after Biden's speech, where I thought, wow, this is this is a definite electoral strategy. And it could be very harmful because it basically employs this you're with us or against us strategy that we've used in counterterrorism, global war on terror over the last 20 years against our own people uh, for electoral purposes and, you know, Lincoln Group defines the never-Trumper effort uh, on the right, uh, which is a small effort 
uh, made up of uh, former neocons, current neocons, um, disgruntled Republicans, center left uh, mealy mouth types who have raised a lot of money, mostly from the left, to go after Donald Trump during his his campaigns and are clearly gunning for Biden in this campaign and for them to identify um, MAGA and pro-Putin forces as, quote unquote, cut from the same cloth is part and parcel of that strategy. I don't know if it's actually going to persuade anybody on the right, which the Lincoln Group you know, proclaims to represent. People aren't going to wake up and go, hi, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. Oh, I don't want to be lumped in with those Putin fascists overseas. I better vote for, for a Democrat in the midterms. But I do think that it puts people on the center left and maybe I, 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 independence on uh, on the hot seat. Uh, it, it, maybe that's where what they're going for. They're trying to to cement this idea that if you are skeptical of Biden's foreign policy on Ukraine, that you might be labeled one of these fascists, these MAGA extremists, and you know, you might want to change your mind on that. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's even effective, Dan. All I'm saying is that is that it's out there and it's it's a bit disturbing to me. Well, well I think and anytime we've seen over the years when presidents have tried to exploit or, or use foreign policy or national security to kind of browbeat people um, in the opposition uh, to their policies uh, and then tried to To marginalize them or to, to ridicule them as somehow not being um, properly um, on board with with what it means to be American or something yeah. like that, or, right. or with the democratic values. It's um, I don't know that it actually benefits them that much in terms of getting people to vote for them or or to be so alienated that they just don't go out to vote. Uh, but what I do think it will ha it will do what it does contribute to is deepening uh, toxic mistrust uh, and, and uh, deepening polarization between members of different parties uh, and actually driving a wedge through the, the middle of the country uh, by creating people that don't fall in line behind a particular foreign policy agenda uh, as though they're, they're not really patriotic. I mean, so I, you know that's that's where I think the, the real danger lies, and and it's more of a, a medium term or long term danger, where you get people that are so alienated from the government's policies and from the the rhetoric that the government is using that they um, they develop sort of, sort of a, a constant reflective antagonism to anything uh, that people on the other side of the country are interested yeah. in. And that's that's can't be good for uh, the the quality of our political debate or the quality of our policy debate. Right. I mean, I'm thinking of someone like myself. I have some genuine disagreements with the Biden foreign policy. I often have disagreements with the with the White House Washington foreign policy, whether it be in this administration or previous administrations. 
usually has to do with not just the national interest, um, but secrecy, transparency, whether or not they're actually representing the will of the people. Um, you know, and, and it, that can extend to, I'm worried that we're going to actually destroy Ukraine in the effort of fighting Russia. I honestly believe that that is a threat that we could put more people in harm's way, whether and, and, and that this might actually uh, blow up to be a broader conflict that might involve our own U.S. troops at some point. I have valid concerns. But what the Lincoln Group is saying is that I am no different than a fascist <laughs> operating, whether it be in Europe, Moscow, what have you, and all of the implications of that label. And I feel that this is, they, they have created, they are trying to create a situation with critics, honest critics of U.S. foreign policy are existential threats to democracy. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to hammer on this for as, as, as long as I can, because I feel like it's a, 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 a very um, a pernicious uh, problem and threat to, to free speech, you know, and dissent in this country. Our guest today is John Hoffman. He is a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me, both of you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed a lot of the, the stuff you've been writing over the last uh, year, year or two years, and uh, glad we were able to get you on here to talk about some of it. Um, there have been some interesting developments happening with uh, U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the last couple of weeks. We've heard some unusually strong rhetoric from Congress calling for the withdrawal of U.S. troops from those countries, a reassessment of these relationships in response to the OPEC plus oil production cut. And most recently, Senator Menendez called for a freeze on all arms sales and security cooperation with Saudi Arabia. Uh, even President Biden is reportedly open to reevaluating the relationship, according to a new report in The New York Times this week. Uh, what do you make of the current backlash, and do you think it will lead to any significant changes in U.S. relations with these states? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, honestly, to to see the, the amount of backlash. And I, just before I hopped on here, I was reading... Uh, John Kirby's comments that Biden is apparently open to talking with Menendez and, and other members of Congress about actually pursuing like substantive action. Um, I, I, whether this will actually lead to an actual change, um, obviously, fingers crossed, I hope so. Um, but we saw a lot of this backlash, you know, with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And, you know, we saw Menendez and uh, others in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee try to enact, you know, uh, their quote unquote veto powers, like the Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act. When Saudi Arabia, you know, MBS specifically ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So it, it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. I think the amount of anger that's being thrown the way of Saudi Arabia and the UAE is rather unprecedented. And, you know, I think it, you know, really, it, it, it appears that it took the oil production cuts and this, you know, idea of throwing in on the side of Russia in the Ukrainian conflict to really move the needle. But it, it seems to have really stirred up a lot. 
Definitely. And well, and it's it's been interesting to see how a lot of people, including some, I think, who were basically on board with Biden going to Saudi Arabia and trying to make amends with Mohammed bin Salman were were uh maybe particularly incensed that the Saudis and Emirates were taking this line um, after Biden had gone there and had had made a point of, of trying to repair the relationship. Uh, maybe that has uh, soured them on it. Now that they realize that our interests are not, in fact, so closely aligned as they had once imagined. Um, speaking of the the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, we saw recently that Mohammed bin Salman was officially made the Saudi Prime Minister. And this has been widely interpreted as a way for him to dodge accountability in the U.S. legal system, uh, because this will allow him to be shielded by sovereign immunity, uh, which had not been the case before this appointment. Um, what do you make of that move? And is there any way that he might still be held accountable for the crimes committed on his orders? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think there's really no way to interpret that move to uh, make himself prime minister other than as a way to get around the, the sovereign immunity question in Jamal Khashoggi. In terms of actually being able to hold him accountable, I think the best way to hold him accountable for uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi would be to hold him accountable for uh, everything that he's done in in Yemen and with these OPEC cuts. You know, these this anger that's present in a lot of Congress right now, you know, this would be a way to hold him accountable for all the horrible things he's done. In, in addition to the murder for Jamal Khashoggi, it, it'll just be interesting to see whether or not you know, like the legislation that was introduced by Tom Milanowski or, you know, Bob Menendez's move, you know, it'll be interesting to see if any of these actually come to fruition. Well, yeah, to, to make him pay a political price for it, uh, as opposed to maybe a, a legal ruling against him. Um, you wrote recently a very interesting piece about the normalization agreements between Israel and several Arab countries, including the UAE. Uh, as you put it in this new order, Israel's project of apartheid and the survival of regional Arab autocracies have become intimately linked. Uh, why is this regional order so dangerous, and why is the U.S. making a mistake by embracing it as it has under both Trump and Biden? So I think this regional order is so dangerous because the way that it's in being embraced so wholeheartedly by the United States and the West as this mechanism for peace what I try to convey in the article is that, you know, obviously this is this is not an order for peace. This is a political mechanism to maintain the status quo in the region. And what it ultimately does is it's the culmination of so many decades of of failed U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that has really been rooted in, on one hand, supporting select Arab autocrats and on the other hand, supporting Israel. And, you know, the historic uh, wall to being able to bridge these two uh, foundational pillars has always been the matter of Palestine and, and popular Arab opinion. But what these accords do is it essentially abrogates both the issue of Palestine and Arab public opinion. And in so doing, it fiercely represses anybody who dares speak out against this order and what is unfortunate is just how it's been embraced so wholeheartedly by both sides of the political spectrum in the U.S. In Congress, that is, there's a, you know, a difference within the actual public. But in Congress, it, it, it's been really embraced. 
Hi, John. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate all the work you've been doing on uh, the normalization issue. I think it's a much underrated issue in foreign policy uh, today only because I feel like it has so many potential impacts on so many different relationships in the Middle East. And I, too, uh, like Daniel, have uh, uh, been uh, interested in the, the Israeli um, and the U.S. sort of uh, furthering this idea, and you yourself too, that this is um, this is somehow um, victory for peace in the region. These normalization agreements, and we had a piece on responsible statecraft. It wasn't written for us. It was written uh, by and for the Crisis Group by Anna Jacobs and Lori Fauche over the weekend, uh, talking about the limits of the normalization agreements in the Middle East and. Um, I was very much interested in, in this one paragraph. I'm just going to get it up because, you know, she talks about or the ladies talk about how Israel has been out there pretty much on a full uh, public relations blitz about the, the the normalization agreements. But they say, and I'm quoting them now, there are limits. Abu Dhabi and Manama share the view of other Gulf capitals that military alliance with Israel against Tehran would carry too great a risk of provoking a war with Iran with only limited benefits. Hence, they are expressly distancing themselves from anything that would put them at loggerheads with Iran. They will likely stay this course, whether the nuclear deal talks succeed or fail. So I'm talking specifically about um, not just the normalization, but the security agreements that uh, Israel seems to want to forge, as well as the U.S., with with these Gulf states and the limits of that, do you agree that at a certain point, uh, these Gulf states are are not going to be 100% behind uh, a anti-Iran security hedge with Israel? Yeah, so, so I I remember this article and, and I and I read it and I forget parts of it, but I I remember that the core argument was that they were risking, you know, bringing tensions with Iran to to an unacceptable state. Right. But the way that I view it is it, from two points of view. The first is I, I think I think they're right. I think, you know, look at like the UAE. The UAE has long helped Iran evade sanctions. Uh, look at uh, uh, Qatar, obviously, has has good relationships with Iran. Saudi Arabia does not want to fight a conventional war with Iran for many reasons. So I think that's, I think they're right there. But one thing that I think that argument, which is very present in, in DC misses is, is a few things. And, and I think by looking so heavily only at Iran, they miss a couple other things. They miss first this desire to maintain the broader status quo within the Middle East not just the regional balance of power, but the authoritarian status quo. So I, I I see that, you know, these this alliance with Israel, quote unquote alliance with Israel, is not just pointed at Iran that so many people in DC always talk about, but this is also rooted in a more uh counter-revolutionary ethos that sees Israel and these Arab Gulf states as wanting to preserve the autocratic status quo. And, and, and I talk about it a bit in the uh, the National Interest article. I think I've actually written about it for uh, Responsible Statecraft. 
about how this is one of the foundational pillars to this relationship is that Israel needs the authoritarian status quo in the Middle East for several reasons. But also, I think the other part that looking solely at Iran misses is this quote unquote alliance between Israel and the Arab Gulf states is also a way to stay tapped into Washington, D.C., you know, regardless of regardless of what happens in Ukraine, regardless of what happens in uh, the Asia Pacific, Israel will always command attention in Congress because of the special relationship the United States has and because of the, the lobbying powerhouse that they have in D.C. So I think this, you know, looking solely at Iran it is Iran certainly plays a role. But, you know, I think what, you know, those types of analyses miss is the authoritarian status quo and this desire of these states to say tapped into Washington. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And it is sometimes difficult to separate the two because Israel seems so hell bent on creating this security architecture against Iran. When like you point out, there are other interests uh, that the Gulf States have in, um, in, creating this normalization, um, maybe even the, the, the security cooperation with Israel. Um, could it all go wrong, though? Could it be that the Gulf states enjoin this new relationship uh, despite their concerns about Iran and, 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 and ramping up tensions there uh, because they have their own needs? And then, and then tensions are rat- ratcheted up and there is a somehow a confrontation down the line, which Israel seems to want a confrontation. I mean, they have talked about it incessantly, saying whether the JCPOA is passed or not, that they are gearing up for some sort of military confrontation with Iran. So could this all go sideways if there aren't yeah, some guardrails I mean, put on? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, Israel certainly seems intent on either taking military action against Iran or somehow convincing the United States to do so. That would be the ideal, yeah. um, getting getting us to do so. Um, but no, I, th- I think you're right. It, it could lead to confrontation. It could also lead to domestic uh, troubles within some of these Gulf states, especially if tensions heat up with Iran and th- the Publics within these Gulf states who are, you know, opposed to largely opposed to normalization deals with Israel absent a genuine solution to the uh, Palestinian issue. If they see tensions ramping up with Iran, they're not going to be very inclined to either a fight on behalf of some sort of, you know, joint Israel alliance, or b uh, put themselves in harm's way domestically. You know, they're not going to want to risk their own lives for, you know, some sort of political, uh, you know, manipulated alliance here from the top down. So I think, you know, whether it implodes from the direction of Iran or whether it implodes domestically, I think there are are inherent risks here. Do you think, um, I'm just switching gears for two seconds here, um, there was a proposal on the table by Congressman Malinowski last week that we take all of our 
uh, troops, which probably number about 65,000 on the high end out of the Gulf region, as well as all of our missiles and anti-missile systems that are in UAE and Saudi Arabia and other places uh, due to the uh, refusal uh, to keep pumping oil, uh, OPEC plus that is. Do you think that would ever, ever happen? I, I don't think it would happen. I think it should happen. Um, but I don't I don't think it will realistically. What is somewhat unfortunate is that it took the refusal of OPEC plus, uh, you know, these it took these production cuts to really jolt and wake up a, a great bit of Washington to say, oh, maybe these guys aren't our friends. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you know, it didn't take the murder of Jamal or all these, uh, you know, human rights activists or the disastrous war in Yemen. You know, that stuff can be, I guess, tolerated. But when it comes to oil or when it comes to, you know, support for Ukraine, you know, that's where we draw the line. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that'll ever happen. I think as instances like this happen, more and more people are getting angry towards these states. And I think somewhere down the line, we might see like a cut in support. But I think that idea of liberal hegemony, you know, is just so ingrained into Washington, D.C.'s mind. You know, they would be very reluctant to abdicate from the Middle East, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and that, that seems to be uh, what we've seen. Uh, we, we keep seeing this pattern where it seems like there are things that ought to break this relation, break the relationships with these states, uh, whether it's Yemen or whether it's 9-11 earlier or, or any of the, the many myriad abuses that these governments have committed, uh, but, but it never seems to happen. Um, and so that, that brings me to the, the main issue that keeps coming up with all of these states, including Israel, uh, which, is, which is impunity, that Client states uh, act with impunity because they assume that they have U.S. backing no matter what they do. And so far, the U.S. has given them no reason to think that they're wrong. Uh, whenever there is a problem with a relationship, the U.S. is the one that hastens to reassure them and to paper over any rifts. And so, of course, they think that if a rift ever does open up, uh, all they have to do is wait for the U.S. to come back and, and, and make everything okay again. Uh, what do you think needs to happen to break this cycle? Um, is this something that will have to be forced on Congress and on the executive by public outrage? What 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 has to happen? I think I think the public outrage is is key. I think especially especially now with you know I I don't know about you all, but here in Northern Virginia, our gas prices have already in just the past week gone up like sixty seventy cents. Uh, just in, in advance of these these production cuts. So I think one public really has to pressure, but I think also there needs to be an effort and there already is with places like Quincy that challenge this conventional thinking in Washington, D.C., that challenge those who always I, Matt Duss, Bernie Sanders, I think now foreign or former a foreign uh, policy advisor. I think he went to Carnegie now. He he put it uh, pretty well that, that there's a, a type of analyst in D.C. that always puts forward the exact same thing regardless of what happens. And he refers to him as the furniture. And, and, I, and I love that. And I think, you know, places like Quincy that challenge, you know, the quote unquote furniture and that increasingly insert themselves into the debates. I think this is what's needed. And 
I think, especially as tensions ramp up with Russia and China, I think we're coming to a realization that even supporters of you know this liberal hegemonic project are, are starting to realize that we can't be so overextended in the Middle East and expect to actually combat China, especially. Right, and and that, well, that's going to require some significant uh, rethinking and, and redesigning of U.S. policies in the Middle East, uh, and and we're not going to get there with the the current set of advisors that we see in the Biden administration. I mean, Brett McGurk, of course, is uh, the the lead in the National Security Council for this part of the world. Um, he's been, I think, everyone would agree, he's been instrumental in shaping Biden administration policy on this front, uh, and and not for the better. Uh, Obviously, he's, he's the one who's been agitating uh, for closer relations with the Saudis and with the UAE. He was the one pushing for the terrorism designation against the Houthis at the UAE's insistence. Uh, and uh, he was, of course, a, a major force driving uh, Biden to go to Saudi Arabia to try to mend fences. Um, how, how do we... Uh, do we have to wait for a, sort of a generational change in in personnel in Washington before we can really start to see the kinds of substantive changes that we want to see, uh, or, or do we think that some of the people that are currently in government might begin to have a change of heart um, and and start setting different priorities in terms of what our policy should be? Yeah, I think. You know, and, and I think I think you're right. You know, people it, it is people like McGurk who are, you know, at the root of the problem here. I think McGurk needs to go. And I think I think it was uh, Representative Rohana who said that McGurk should come and testify before Congress on, on you know, what were you thinking, you know, leading up to this Saudi trip? Like, how are you going to react now? How are you going to advise the president now that this has failed so terribly? You know, it may take a generational change. It may take you know, outrage like, you know, Rohana's, you know, towards people like McGurk and saying, hey, you know, you guys are the ones feeding into the ear of Biden all these incorrect policies. Whether or not there'll be a genuine change of heart in the people like McGurk, I, I don't think so. They're so rooted in th this just conventional thinking that autocrats are the way to go in the Middle East. And, you know, McGurk himself uh, is an interesting figure because there was a really interesting article a few months back in the Huffington Post that did like a profile of McGurk. And it, 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 it's, it's a great profile and just showing, you know, this McGurk is almost a, a microcosm of the problems within the Middle East. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, within the Middle East uh, policy community, you know, he, he kind of embodies all of the flaws. So, you know, until we can remove people like McGurk or, you know, hold them accountable, like Brohana is trying to do, I, I, you know, I think they're just going to keep feeding into the year of Biden. Yeah, I think Correct. the uh, the metaphor for for uh, Dust's furniture metaphor we can be uh, extended uh, to uh, McGurk, and you know, it's like a, an attic in a horror movie filled with all sorts of uh, heavy, dusty Victorian <laughs> couches and and armoires, and you know, crashing the war party and others like uh, Quincy or whatever trying to clean house. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I, I like that furniture uh, <laughs> metaphor, you know, if, if we're using that, you know, McGurk is like Ikea. I mean, this man is, is, <laughs> you know, he is the furniture of furniture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
we can go on all day on this one. Yeah. <laughs> we have a whole show on furniture. Who? You know, what <laughs> kind of furniture is everybody in the blob? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so on on that uh, humorous note, uh, we'll have to close it there. We're, we're out of time, but uh, thanks very much, uh, John Hoffman, for coming on the show. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Well, thank you, Kelly and Daniel, for having me on. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.